Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer. I'm joined today by my colleague and Power Hour producer, John Pop. John, or I, I forgot to say, our chief propagandist, John That's Pop. right, the minister of propagandary, <laughs> or whatever that word is I try to make up and didn't do a good job. <laughs> I am great, Jack. Yeah. You know why it's a special day? Why is that? I brought back from Pennsylvania, or actually from Virginia, it's imported from Pennsylvania down in Virginia, some Pennsylvania Dutch diet birch beer, right. best thing ever. So I'm in extra special good mood today. <laughs> It's funny you mention that. Pen- Pennsylvania produces a lot of good stuff like oh, that, man. like birch beer, yep, and pretzels, yeah, you name it. One, you know, I there's nothing I love more. I think there's probably things I love more, but I love capitalism. Like I think I've demonstrated over oh, the yeah. time we've been doing this, I love capitalism and free markets. And there is no one, I would say, no one on God's green earth, who does capitalism better than the Amish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when I go to Pennsylvania, they get me to spend $8 for a small jar of, like, um, pickled eggs or, or pickled beets and some kind of crazy berry jelly. And the next thing I know, I'm $100 less wealthy. And yep. They do it so – I mean, they, they make their, their, their shops seem like you're stepping back in time. And they know exactly what they're doing. Oh, yeah. There's a place we go to on the way down to, to UVA called Yoder's. Right. And it's just – it's over – Stimulation. There's there's deli. There's fresh food. There's prepared. There's pies, cakes. There's yeah. there's knickknacks. There's snacks. It's like too much. They and know I, how and to I do love it. every minute of it. Yeah. So. They know how to do it. And they can also build a nice, you know, come here do a mini barn raising. My dad had built a shed by the Amish, built it mm-hmm. on his property, like a mini barn raising. It'll come and do it for you. Yeah, a, quite a good deal too. Yeah. So, yeah, I have I have a good story about that. I'm not going to tell, tell that today though, um, but it's funny. Uh, I'm going to the opposite of that. Next week, I'm going to New York for a couple of days Ooh. for work. So we'll see how that goes. I'm going to go and participate in a discussion at, uh, at uh, uh, University of New York or New York University. I don't know. NYU? Yes. Yes. And so uh, we're, we're going to talk energy and nuclear, so I'm excited about that. I Even, even though I spend a lot of time here talking about my outdoor endeavors— I also like a, a few days in a place like New York. New York's fun. Are you in the city? I am. Oh, yeah, up in New York. That's fun. Yeah. yeah. yeah for a few days. I love it for a few days, and then, then I had enough of it. But it's it's always fun to go. Yeah. But I will uh, be headed back to the mountains of West Virginia, of course. Of course. Where I have been spending my weekends, and I'll be doing that again. And the fishing's heating up. The hunting's heating up. So this is just such a great time of year. I'm excited about all that. So there we go. So, Jack, when are we going to do the power hour and record it in your tree stand? How about that? (laughs) How about never? Okay. (laughs) How about never? never. Yes. Okay, never mind. Shelve that idea. (laughs) Anyway, now, before we do, and we we actually have a guest here. 
Oh, we do. And I'm we're sorry. Gonna, we're actually going to do a podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, but before I introduce our guest, John, I have a little bit of housekeeping to do, as we like to do. We like to tell folks our email address, which is thepowerhour at heritage.org. That's thepowerhour at heritage.org. Shoot me an email. I love hearing from you. I always respond, and I need a friend. So let me hear what's going on. That email address is thepowerhour at heritage.org. Now, John, how do folks find us? We are part of the Heard at Heritage podcast feed. So look up Heard at Heritage, The Power Hour. You can get it wherever you get podcasts. And we just published a fresh episode just published today. So please check it out and subscribe and share with your friends. Definitely do that. And also... I was. I just thought I would mention to folks. There's also a landing page that has all of our yes, all of our podcasts on it. If you go to your favorite search engine and type in the Heritage Foundation, the Power Hour, you'll see it pop up and yeah, and you and can get everything there too. You can even just look up Heritage Podcasts. It has all the Heritage Podcasts, including the Power Hour, and every episode is there. It's great stuff. There you go. So anyway, today's podcast is going to be a good one. Not that they're not all good, but I'm especially looking forward to this one. We talk a lot about how, how important energy is to everything we do. We talk a lot about how bad policy is going to make everything involving energy more difficult and more expensive. But here's the thing, John. To be honest, now we have great guests. This is not taking any way, anything away from any of our guests. But like me, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, though they are outstanding, they never had to go out and make money building energy infrastructure, like building power plants. They're policy folks, for the most part. Or, you know, they yeah. have government experience and, and that sort of thing. Well, that's about to change. Today we have a guy with literally decades of experience in the power production industry. He's held high-level positions in some of the world's biggest companies. We're talking companies like Mitsubishi and Westinghouse. He's currently the managing director at Dakota Group, which is an energy consulting firm. But most importantly of all, as I always like to point out with our guests, he's just a good guy. And that's why I'm excited to have him here. I present to our Power Hour audience, Mr. David Walsh. Dave, welcome to the Power Hour. Hey, guys, thanks for having me. And you, you must be omniscient. You've made me very comfortable talking about my home state of Pennsylvania, Ah, and there you I go. had uh, uh, right after the Civil War graduated from the University of Virginia not that long ago. I'm kidding. <laughs> and recently, about a month ago, my wife and I were vacationing in West by God, Virginia. So wow, I'm, I'm very comfortable with it. Now we have to get um, we have to get some details now. Where are you from in Pennsylvania? Pittsburgh, my original home. <sighs> Sorry about that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Are you a Steelers guy? Uh, yes, I am. I'm Did you watch? Long. I'm a Ravens guy. Did you watch that horrible game? At least from I, my perspective, this weekend. I, I missed it. I've I've become a bit of. A, I'm now oh, living yeah. in Florida. I've become a bit of a fair weather fan. I have to admit, I've missed the last few ball games. It, I like to possibly owing to their record. A, I, I won't admit that. <laughs> if you're a Ravens guy, it was a horrible game. The the Ravens were dominating that game, and then through. A series of blunders and bad plays and God knows what, uh, Steelers pulled it out. So there you go. Now, where did you go in West Virginia? Uh, we were down in uh, White Sulphur Springs, um, okay. place owned by the governor, the Greenbrier, beautiful place. Uh huh. Doing a little golfing and spending a few yeah. days there. Beautiful, beautiful All place. Right. Gorgeous. Yeah. West Virginia is awesome. I, I really like it. 
Now, um, Dave, can I talk a little bit about your career? One of the things we like to do is just get to know folks a little bit. So, you know, you've, I know you've worked in a ton of jobs, a ton of high-level jobs. Walk us through a little bit sort of how you got into the energy industry and some of the, the things that you've done. And I might interrupt you here and there to ask more details, but what, what, what got you to, to where you are right now? Well, actually, early in life, I was, a, uh, I was an accountant. My background is finance. My degree at UVA was in that area, and I had um, joined Arthur Anderson back when it existed. I worked for a couple major firms, actually, that no longer exist. Unfortunately, that's one of them. When I left there, I went to Westinghouse, where um, you know, it was a major at the time, major, major manufacturer of trans- transmission and distribution and generation equipment. I, I migrated up to, I left finance back in the late 1980s and wound up running their international service operations at shops in Arabia, Australia, Singapore, Thailand, Venezuela, Brazil, um, traveled the world running those. I then ran their um, power generation service business. I ran their joint ventures in China. Westinghouse was selected by the Chinese Ministry of Electric Power to be an experimental partner with the Shanghai turbine and generator manufacturing facilities. So we were a minority partner, but a major investor. I was the vice chair of those back in the mid to late 90s. I left Westinghouse in the late 90s and founded the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries turbine business in the Western Hemisphere for power generation. They weren't able to compete here post-World War II. There was an agreement reached that General MacArthur actually put forward that um, Westinghouse and GE needed to return to Japan in 46 and help reconstruct uh, their relationships with Hitachi and Toshiba in the case of GE, in the case of Westinghouse with Mitsubishi. And to do that, he waived the antitrust laws in a letter that I happen to have seen. So our relationship was one of um, supporting one another, Westinghouse and Mitsubishi. So when I had left uh, Westinghouse, or Siemens then, had bought uh, the power generation business of Westinghouse, Mitsubishi reached out to me and asked me to help form a business in the U.S. in power generation that they weren't able to have before once Siemens purchased Westinghouse Power just to step forward and said, hey, um, we need Mitsubishi to compete fully. And for that reason, you know, that they encouraged Siemens to made them disassociate a technical alliance with Mitsubishi to allow Mitsubishi to come here and create competition with then remaining Siemens and GE in major generation equipment. Did, so can, I, can I ask a quick quick yeah. question about that? Was the was the nuclear components part uh, part of that? No, the, the primary the, the, the primary nuclear side was sold uh, by Westinghouse to um, British Nuclear Fuel. So no, the nuclear the the secondary side though the service was a business that I was very involved in on turbines and okay. generators yeah. and nuclear plants, but the reactor side was sold off by Westinghouse to BNFL okay. at the time. So with that, I founded, I actually founded the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries Western Hemisphere Power Generation Business for gas turbines, steam turbines, and ran the service manufacturing business initially and later in my career when they decided they wanted finally a um, local U.S. president and CEO. I was the first one picked. Uh, to be in that role. I was also on the board of their global power generation company, who, who compete actively head-on-head with globally Siemens and GE uh, in, in the non-China world market. China have you know five huge of its own generation equipment manufacturers, um, but in the rest of the world, the, you know, the three companies, GE, 
Um, Siemens and Mitsubishi Heavy are the major head-on-head competitors in large generating equipment. So I was on, on the board of the U.S. company, then ran it, and also I was a, a corporate officer in the MHI global power generation business. I retired from that role in uh, about five, six years ago, and, and uh, am very involved in providing private equity advisory services in power, specifically in power generation, and uh, very active in that space uh, as a, an advisor to many firms seeking to invest in the power business. So, All right. So I, I want to get to American domestic energy issues, but first I want to talk follow up a little bit on what what you've done so far and dig in a little bit deeper on international issues. First, though, you mentioned a number of times um, large generating equipment. What do you mean by that? Well, that's the uh, I'm speaking more to the traditional global uh, layout of a power plant, which generally tends to be a coal, gas or nuclear power plant that's you know, 500 megawatts in size or larger that is fueled either by nuclear fuel, by coal, which remains the dominant fossil fuel being used in the world, or by natural gas, which the more current version of a natural gas-fired power plant is a couple of gas turbines with the exhaust recycled, if you will, through a heat recovery steam generator into a steam turbine to produce 50% more energy with the recycled exhaust called combined cycle. Uh, we in the industry should have called that recycling. We called it combined cycle. That has proven to be a mistake because, <laughs> as you know, it's under yeah. attack as a fossil fuel. But those, those large assets form by far and away the bulk of global electricity supply. Wind and solar globally, about 4 to 5% of total electrification. Hydroelectricity is about... Um, Oh, globally, about 6 to 7% of global electrical supply. Most large-scale electricity supply in the world is either coal, number one, two, gas, or three, nuclear-powered. You know, one of the things that, um, that I think folks probably don't recognize, and the reason I asked the previous question, is how large these components are that make up you know, a coal or nuclear plant, whether it's the, the steam generators, which are just these massive metal uh, uh, cylindrical things, or the the reactor vessels, or the steam, uh, or the, the 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 vessels that the coal uh, gets burned in. These are just massive pieces of equipment that um, require, th- in 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 many cases, um, barges to to transport them. They need to shut down roads to get them to where yep. they need to go. Just these huge pieces that are only. The forgings that are used to produce them only exist in a couple of places around the world. Right. Yeah, uh, for example, to your point, the generator rotor and steam turbine rotor uh, forgings are really made mainly now in Austria, in of course in China, and in Japan, at two foundries in Japan. Unfortunately, Bethlehem Steel was the last U.S. Uh, up in uh, Sparrows Point, Maryland, last facility in the U.S. that forged... Uh, forgings of that size for a steam turbine or generator rotor. So unfortunately, the U.S. is out of that space. But just to give you an idea, I mean, a, ga- a large frame gas turbine of the type supplied by Mitsubishi, GE, or Siemens weighs, you know, in the ballpark of uh, 400 tons, 400 metric tons. A generator rotor can weigh 110 tons. So yeah, these are these are very large and heavy and, and technically complex devices, which yeah. we'll get to later on. But 
The, 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 the footprint, however, of, of the plant sizes that this large equipment goes into compared to renewables is tiny. Yeah. It, it, a, a square mile facility can be a nuclear power plant of 2,000 megawatts uh, power capacity that would take um, nearly 85,000 acres if solar, and that would work about five hours a day. Uh, just to give you an idea, the, the density of power provided by a, a less than one square mile nuclear power plant, a combined cycle plant of that size, about 1,000 megawatts, would be, can be situated on about 35 to 40 acres. Uh, producing a thousand megawatts of electricity for, you know, upwards of uh, up close to a million people. Uh, and coal would be a similar footprint, right? Yeah, similar to in between between because you've got a coal pile and more coal handling equipment between the size of a nuclear plant and a large gas-fired plant. So you know, coal plant would be a thousand megawatts could be about half a square mile. Yeah. Again, but again, compared to their renewable counterparts, not very large. In, uh, in fact, very, very small in uh, space consumption and acreage consumption. Right. Um, I want to talk about global energy markets for a minute. One of the things that we talk a lot about here, and just I think a major issue that permeates the energy policy debate is energy independence. Um, now, I've always believed that you know energy trade was an important part of energy independence, and I think sometimes folks don't understand how how exporting and importing energy doesn't make us dependent on anyone it's 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 those um or that's what i would argue i'm interested to see what you say but it's having the it's having functioning energy markets where we're not dependent on either government or foreign adversaries that really is what breeds energy depend in energy independence and i was wondering given your view or given your perspective of really seeing global energy markets unfold over long periods of time. What, do you agree with that? Where do you think we find energy independence? Well, if you go back in this country to the time uh, post-World War II and Admiral Rickover was given the responsibility to uh, integrate and just figure out how to, really, his idea, uh, create the Atoms for Peace program, that is creating nuclear power for commercial use of energy production, the, the basic hallmarks of a, a robust electricity supply were that, that the fuel sources be domestic, and this was practiced globally in, the, in, in all developed countries, the fuel sources be domestic. Uh, equipment supply also was largely uh, domestic. It, Japan, Germany, England, France, uh, Russia, uh, China uh, produced their own generating and T&D assets largely over history. Um, but, the, but again, the fuel resources being domestic and being abundant and being in supply sufficient to meet the national security needs of a given nation and not just the U.S. Others practiced this aggressively and having fuel sources that were under domestic control because, you know, energy is the lifeblood of an entire economy, including an economy's ability to defend itself and have ample industrial strength to make the forgings, castings, specialty machine parts that wind up in also in weapons, not at, you know, just for human consumption and human and, you know, standard of living elevation, but for those purposes also. So generally over history, since the invention of electricity specifically, um, most developed nations have had uh, a followed a policy of attempting to uh, sort out how to create electricity domestically with domestic resources for the aforementioned reasons. Um, 
that that has veered off in the case of oil globally with the development of large tankers and deep deep uh, ocean drilling to a lot more uh, portability of oil. So those markets became more global back in the early 60s uh, to late 60s with the development of high capacity tankers. And now we're seeing the same thing emerge with respect to natural gas with much more abundant uh, LNG exportation and liquefaction at receiving points occurring globally. So natural gas is beginning to see more of a globalization of the market for it. But still, I mean, if you look, for example, specifically at China's uh, own policies on, on energy, electricity, and electri electrification, they're all about those key hallmarks of domestic supply, of, of, of coal, which they have an abundance of, of, of nuclear power, of hydropower that they have an abundance of. Gas, they've had a massive shortage of, but unfortunately that's now being solved for them by Russia with plans to build pipelines instead of to Western Europe, now to China, um, but solved also in China by the fact that they are uh, rife with lithium, cobalt, and copper supply, allowing them to be the world's largest producer of lithium-ion uh, batteries and of thin-film PV for solar. So they've got basically a domestic energy supply system that they've established, which for a developed country is appropriate. We've, we've largely been on the same page, excepting for more recent times of the uh, solar and wind and now battery storage binge that it really is all about foreign supplied components going back to a little bit of a mirroring of where we were in the early 70s and the late 60s with respect to far more oil and gas importation than, than we were comfortable with leading to the formation of actually the DOE under the Carter administration. So, but generally speaking, uh, developed nations have, uh, with technology, have sought to have internalized energy production assets and fuel resources to the extent possible for their, for their control of their own economy and, and their own defense, including, again, in the past, France, England, Germany, Japan to this day, China to this day, have followed those kinds of uh, philosophies as developed countries. I wonder, and I'm... Uh... I wonder if it's the case. I'm curious what you think of this. As the world has become more globalized, energy, uh, the energy markets have followed that. And one of the things we're learning now, as we see post-Cold War, that that creates certain vulnerabilities. And we're still trying to figure out how do, how do we garner the benefits of larger markets, of international markets, while at the same time not subjecting ourselves unnecessarily to the vulnerabilities that they also create. And with the invasion of Ukraine, with the rise of China, these are all things that are forcing us to rethink how, how uh, global energy markets um, co conflict up against some of these geopolitical realities. But we don't want to just have all we don't want to in, in fear of some of these geopolitical realities just turn in, in inward so we need to figure out like how do we reach that balance do you think that's a fair way to look at this oh absolutely and as we talked oil became a globalized commodity in the you know late 50s through late 60s coal similar with the large freighters becoming you know fungible enough to be able to carry large quantities of it 
from Indonesia, from Colombia, from Australia to Japan and the like. Uh, natural gas has moved strongly in that same direction in the last, just in the last 12 years since LNG exportation has become prominent, particularly in this country, Australia, uh, Qatar being major suppliers of LNG. But electricity, though, itself is a harder nut to crack because it, you know, it generally hasn't been transmitted over great distances of ocean, therefore tends to be more locally supplied and more, more governmentally controlled in actually most uh, nas- international markets. But the, but the thing is, you know, to be being bulletproof on, on, on these things, even in a global environment, one needs to be, to the extent one is working with trading partners, they, they, they best ought be allied, like-minded politically, not, not threatening hostile nations who only work with you in terms of selling you, for example, oil, and otherwise have a completely hostile perspective on whether your existence on this earth or, right. you know, uh, how they perceive you politically. So, you know, to the extent one needs to deal with um, foreign sources of oil, coal, uranium, whatever, uh, best efforts should always be taken that they be friendly nations because you're talking about substances essential to your economy and essential to your own ability to defend yourself. Dealing with uh, friends and allies in that, in that sense is fundamentally important to any nation's strategy in developing, uh, you know, participating in global trade, but at the same time being secure, energy secure. You, you can't be energy secure dealing with your, if you will, your enemies and your adversaries relative to energy. And one of the things that I think is most frustrating with this administration is they are engaging with those folks not just engaging with, but creating dynamics where Americans are dependent on them at the very same time that they're restricting access to our own resources, which just amplifies the effect that they're creating. And it's really putting us in a dangerous situation. And that brings us to what it, the, the real reason I invited you here is to talk about what's going on with, um, with domestic energy policy. I know you've taken some time and really dove down into what is happening at the utility level and what utilities are doing across the country is they're planning uh, regarding what sort of electricity production they, they, they intend to produce and how much. Talk, talk us through a little bit what you have found and sort of where, at least from the utility perspective, they seem to be going. Well, it's, it, it's, it's disappointing because, you know, a number of us, including yours truly, can spend fair time on the media criticizing the present government. But, um, we're also now looking at um, a trend of capitulation by utilities to where in the past, with the war on coal initially waged strongly by the Clinton and Obama administrations, utilities, generating utilities tended to fight them and resist their efforts to make coal too costly to use for power generation. That, that has shifted over time, probably given a lot of ESG shareholding in a number of major heavily capitalized U.S. utilities to going along with and actually seeing how they can, and I hate to suggest this, benefit from the asset churn opportunities presented by a dramatic shift to renewables, whether that makes sense or not. And that's what we're beginning to see. Just in, in, the, in the macro sense, if you look at the fast transition kind of charts that McKinsey, Booz Allen, people like IHS Market put out for the next 10 years, looking at U.S. electricity supply, we're going to see 
we have today about 1,100 gigawatts of generation, 1,200 gigawatts installed in the U.S. About 78% of it is dispatchable, i.e. on demand, meaning humans at a control station can start a power plant. And that, that's a good thing because you don't want to leave that up to nature. You do want human intervention when it becomes very hot or very cold to create electricity. We're migrating over in the next 10 years to a, a programmatic de-electrification of the country, given we're going to shut down, by, by announced plans, about 100,000 megawatts of coal plants will be shut down further. We're, today, we're at about 210,000 operating megawatts of coal. That's going to be cut in half by announced plans by the next in the next 10 years, and these plans are announced in utility integrated resource plans that I'll talk about, and largely be displaced with wind and solar. Nearly 450 um, gigawatts of wind and solar, but the trouble is when you fracture down those rating plate values on wind and solar to how much they actually are operable, which is a very small part of the day. Again, onshore wind operates eight hours a day, so it's about a 33 to 34% utilizable resource. Solar nationally, the national average is about five hours a day, so it's generally a 20% available resource for electricity generation. So when you fracture down these huge numbers being D- proffered... Dave, can I, I just interrupt? I need to interrupt you real quick because we need to also put in context what the other sources are. So nuclear is over 95%. Um, gas and coal is over 80%, right? Of well, their, now, yeah, nuclear today is about 20% of the U.S. electricity supply. No, no, but I mean their capacity factors. So oh, you're capacity, saying that wind, yeah. wind and solar is... This, is... this is exactly the issue. Coal right. operates essentially all the time. Right. Nuclear operates all of the time. Advanced right. combined cycle plants operate all of the time. They're on. Right. They're what's called on demand. Right. The trouble is these renewable resources operate a very part of the time. The percentages I mentioned. Oh, by right. the way, battery storage is about a four-hour-a-day thing. Right. So when you take the collection of battery storage at four hours a day, solar at twenty percent of the time being about five hours a day, wind being about eight hours a day, you've got a massive deficiency. In, in their power production uh, ability, coupled with the fact that wind and solar are intermittent. They come and they go with the vicissitudes of cloud cover or the wind blowing. Specifically in the evening, the wind dies down a lot, 30 to 40 percent. In, in about 430, in most markets, the sun loses 100 percent of its ability to, to provide electrification until about 830 the next morning. So it has an enormous period of providing no value. So the trouble is when you look at the huge spend on these things coming and you factor down the net energy contribution remaining, we're only growing U.S. electricity supply by about 4.2% in the next 10 years, where just normal growth of GDP and population would suggest in 10 years you need about 20% growth in electrification capacity before you even begin thinking about mass adoption of EVs or home heating in the Northeast and Upper Midwest with electricity. Before those things, you need about 20% electrification growth between now and 2032. And and we're actually growing it by only 4% because of the huge deficit inside of these renewables being non-operational the majority of the time. So this, this creates, and at a very, very high cost, 
for ratepayers, given that the solar installations tend to be four and a half times more costly than conventional combined cycle, wind about four times more costly, offshore wind about 10 times more costly in CapEx, battery storage about 20 times more costly in CapEx, compounded by the fact that battery banks only live, last, if you will, for about 10 years, compounding their four-hour-a-day duty cycle. So we're, we're adding resources that have very low net energy value, displacing 100% of the time, to your good point, dispatchable, mainly dispatchable coal being shut, and, and additional nuclear plants being shuttered, even though Vogel has been added just now in Georgia, we're shuttering equivalent capacity as Vogel over the next 10 years on a programmatic basis. So the only thing growing of any consequence are, are these huge investments by really all players in wind and solar with battery storage backup. One of the things that folks need to recognize is what the cost of all this and what the reality of all this is going to be. And the, the fact of the matter is, as sure as the sun comes up every day, economic growth is driven by and economic growth and growth in energy production go hand in hand. That has always been the case. So we cannot allow them to tell us that, no, we'll, we, we don't need to produce as much energy. We're going to be more efficient. We're going to do this. It's just a lie. The fact of the matter is we always become more energy efficient because efficiency is rewarded in the marketplace. Right. And we also produce, need more energy to fuel a growing economy. The two go hand in hand. And if government tries to stop the production of energy, they will, without question, stop the growth of the economy. And that will and and that will come at the cost of American families and businesses across this country, and that's just straight up math, and you can't get out of that problem. Exactly, Jack. There are a couple of great correlation charts by country and kilowatt hour consumption per person showing the absolutely powerful ninety percent plus correlation between energy utilization per capita and GDP by country absolutely tightly correlated. By the way, the Chinese are very familiar with this and basically is what they are doing and have done for themselves. You know, there's, they're on a program of announcing about two new coal plants a week in the last year to continue to attempt to catch up with Western Europe and the U.S. in terms of electrification per capita, and, and they're beginning to get close. Uh, because this is what they need to do to remain competitive and remain industrialized. And they know, by the way, that promoting the opposite in a market like this one, who they are hostile with, uh, will serve them very well in the long-term competition as we tend to deindustrialize if we continue to move down a path of de-electrification with these part-time devices and then over-focus on, on things now called emissions that didn't used to be emissions, uh, shutting down more and more capacity for baseload energy. We, we wind up reducing our energy uh, consumption, uh, which will be the, the end of industrialization here, such as has happened in the U.K. already. And in it's Germany. beginning now to happen in Germany actively. Yeah. yeah. Now, I, I want to come back to um, something you said earlier. But before that, uh, there, there are two charts, if you will, anyone can look them up that I think are really good examples of what you're talking about. One, we've all seen, or many of us have seen, and if you haven't, I'd encourage you to look it up, uh, 
the nighttime global view of Asia where you have all these lights except North Korea, which is just dark. And you can really see where the most advanced countries have the most lights, which is the perfect um, proxy for electricity use, and the ones that don't. So it's clear that power and electricity is what drives high standards of living and, 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 and sort of what we expect in modern society. The other one is, and if you look at how much uh, the, the, the per capita income was for the average Westerner prior to the discovery uh, and use of coal. In 2019 dollars, it was a little under $1,000 uh, a, a year. Today, as because of the use of coal and hydrocarbons, it's over $65,000. Now, it was that under $1,000 for hundreds and hundreds of years. It wasn't like that's just some point on a trajectory. The tra trajectory had been flat for 1,000 years. It's not until the introduction of hydrocarbons that you saw this tremendous wealth be generated. And with tremendous wealth has come uh, healthier uh, people, lo longer lives, all of the things that make life great today are, I would argue, a function of the uh, using hydrocarbons and that we have somehow allowed ourselves to get into this situation where these whole communities of people, entire governments, demonize hydrocarbons. It's just unconscionable as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's um, Jack, it's, uh, it's criminal. Um, if you look, I mean, England is a great example, and it's been well chronicled, uh, and globally. Before, before about 1880, before electrification was really invented and mass development of it, agrarian activities consumed about 70% of jobs. Uh, farming, agriculture, subsistence, living to create for oneself and one's family and maybe enough to sell some food to, to live on prior to electrification. And also prior to electrification, the, um, you know, the average human work week in places like the UK and Western Europe and here was a, a double, to, double to two and a half times longer than it is now that we have uh, power generated tractors, farming equipment, steel making equipment started with rolling mills and then went to thin strip slab casters all, you know, aluminum smelters, but the aluminum strip mills, all kinds of production equipment that's power-driven has, has basically taken human, human beings, by and large, out of the bondage of being slaves to work, having to, to work, you know, 75, 85 hours a week, which, which was prevalent prior to 1890. This, this has all radically changed for the better. Lifespans have expanded dramatically and due in part to food production due to ammonia-based and nitrogen-based fertilizers that come from natural gas, almost quintupling farming production globally in the last 40 years. So, the, I mean, the, the, you know, without, it, and it's amazing that we're having to explain these kinds of things to the public once again, but life without refrigeration, without air-conditioned hospitals to perform surgery in, without lasers to perform surgery with, without lighting, without electrification for computers, data centers, and server centers, means moving backward in time to a far less civilized place in time, you know, without all of these conveniences that permit the world to have 7.2 billion people. Um, th th this is, uh, electricity and energy are simply life-sustaining things. We, we used in Westinghouse a chart, different chart, than you mentioned, uh, 
to support investments we were making in certain markets. One showed the GDP and the per capita and the electrification per capita by year of certain countries compared to the U.S. in 1990 being, being a one. Sub-Sahara Africa nations collectively in 2010 were roughly at, the, at a 1910 level of U.S. electricity consumption per capita. And, you know, most of those countries, unfortunately, GDP per capita is $600, $800, $1,100 per person. It's, a, it's staggeringly low. And you're talking just there about 800 million people with electrification even today at about a 1915 U.S. and Western Europe level. Those countries need the massive introduction of low-cost, high-density, high-energy, nuclear, coal, and gas-fired power. They cannot be brought into modern civilization Western standards with wind, wind that operates eight hours a day and solar that operates five to six hours a day and at the cost levels we're talking about. It's so obvious that I wonder sometimes if it's not on purpose. <laughs> you know, I really do because the, the you know, not, not to get all dark web on us or anything, but I can't help it sometimes. All of the things we're talking about are so, should be so obvious to everyone. Our air is clean. Um, our, you know, just life should be good. And um, that there are, there's this political movement that makes things up. They say we need to become, you know, for energy efficiency reasons, for um, global warming reasons, for all of this. Not only do they want to set us back, they want to keep people who never had the benefit of going through the Industrial Revolution and the, 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 the current information revolution and the Green Revolution. Uh, they want to keep them from ever doing it. And so at, at the same time, I guarantee you, and as we see time and again, the leaders, the mouthpieces of this political movement, they never subject themselves to any of these things. They fly all they want. They drive whatever they want. They live in wherever they want. Um, so, you know, there's something going on here. <laughs> this isn't totally by accident. No, it's not. And, I mean, if you go back, uh, and again, I'm going to say again, China does not celebrate. Actually, 180 countries don't celebrate uh, decarbonization and net zero the way that 13 do, the 13 being Canada, the U.S., New Zealand, Australia, and the nine nations known as being in Western Europe, are the aggressive celebrants of net zero. The balance of the world by actions taken really are not celebrants of that because they need, they need more, generally need more electrification at a low cost to support the economic vitality of the populations that they serve. Um, and if you go back to the, one of the key things that occurred, the, uh, the U.S. adopted the belief that CO2, in specifically about 2008, via a couple rulings by, the, uh, by SCOTUS at the time and the EPA, that under a Democrat administration at the time, that CO2 was now to be characterized as a harmful pollutant. Prior to that, all of the time prior to that, yes, nitrous oxides, yes, sulfur, yes, heavy particulate, yes, heavy metals like mercury were absolutely deemed properly to be harmful pollutants. The fact of the matter is the greenhouse gases, 
most notoriously A, in quantity, water vapor, which is 500 times more prevalent than CO2 in the upper atmosphere, B, CO2 itself, and C, methane, are all essentially naturally produced substances, two of which are absolutely fundamental to life itself, being A, water, which is a far more pervasive, if you will, greenhouse gas causing warming, and B, CO2, which consists of 0.0004 of the upper atmosphere. The man-caused portion of CO2 is about 4% of it. About 96% of it emanates from evaporating ocean water and lake water. So the entire notionality of defining this particular substance, which is essential to growing plant life and food, uh, as a harmful pollutant has done a huge amount of damage in the countries that I've mentioned who have glommed onto this as some kind of a reality. Um, I, I will tell you, the other 180 countries led by China, by India, including Japan, including Japan, um, not on board with this by actions that they've taken. By rhetoric in meetings, uh, yes. Waving pom-poms in meetings in Belgium, in Brussels, in Paris, yes, they claim to be on board. In, in action space, they are not on board with this set of theories. Japan itself erected uh, 13 ultra-supercritical coal plants between 2014 and 2019, just for example. Can you tell us a little bit about that technology? That's one of the things we've mentioned on the show before, but we've never really gotten into it. Well, that you know, pe people often characterize coal as as dirty, or they or they will use the term which I hate, which is clean coal, to talk about carbon capture and sequestration. I would argue we have clean coal, and you're going to describe why what you just said is exactly that. Well, we do. Uh, the the deemed harmful pollutants again: SO2, nitrous oxides, heavy metals and heavy particulate were basically 85% removed from coal-fired coal generation by great companies in the U.S. like Combustion Engineering, in Germany by Lurgy, by Siemens, in Japan by Hitachi, Toshiba. Um, in, the, in the 80s through mid-90s, those pollutants were to, to about an 86% level removed from coal-fired generation with the advent of scrubbers, bag houses, electrostatic precipitators, FGD systems, all of the back-end environmental controls to eliminate, largely eliminate, not to net zero, mind you, those actual harmful pollutants. Now, since that time also, tremendous development that started again here, Japan and Germany, of what's called ultra-supercritical or super-high-temperature coal-fired power, taking temperatures up to ballpark 1200C in burning coal in boilers, took efficiencies from about 34, 35% up to about 46%, a massive improvement in efficiency in coal-fired boilers, which again has made them nominally another 35% cleaner than they had been before. This, by the way, is what China happens to be building today, ultra-supercritical, they're called HECA, high, super-high efficiency, uh, steam turbines and boilers in their modern coal plants, what Japan has recently commissioned, the same thing, being very clean, very large baseload coal plants. Coal used in that way is not dirty. It's 85 to 90 percent cleaner than it had been, again, talking about the actual identified harmful pollutants that, that cause harm to human health, the ones that I mentioned, have largely been eradicated in, with the use of these more modern plants. We have only one of these in the U.S. 
we were in the middle, combustion engineering, good Hartford, Connecticut company, was in the middle of inventing this technology, and here we are not using it, uh, using Japan and China, widely using it, and elsewhere in Asia where plants are being built rapidly, are, are using HECA, ultra-supercritical coal-fired technology. It's a very valid source of clean energy. Now here's the problem we have, Dave. Other than you and me, and maybe a couple other folks, I don't care if it's alleged conservatives, Republicans, people in the gas and oil industry, people who, um, who claim to want energy security, to a person, just about. They all talk in terms of um, dirty coal versus clean coal. Or when they talk about China, they say they're building X number of coal plants and we'll never get global warming under control as long as they're building coal plants. Or they talk about in the United States, we need to have this carbon capture and sequestration program. They all talk in the language of the left, all of them. And it, it makes it nearly impossible. Like what you just laid out. Virtually nobody knows that. Nobody understands it because the language and rhetoric, not just of the left, but of our friends, of people on our side, are screwing this all up. How do we change that? Well, we did, we did make a mistake back in the time and place when a Republican administration did point to, well, on the Paris Climate Accord, we're not going to join it since China continues to build coal plants. Yes, they're evil. That was a bit of a misdirect and a mistake. Uh, the fact of the matter is the plants they're building now are mainly all HECA, ultra-supercritical. Yes, 15 years ago, most of what they had were very dirty, had no back-end controls, war was causing a lot of human health damage in China. They've changed that. They, they've transitioned over to building clean plants, as Japan does, uh, as Germany has uh, half a dozen or more of and are restarting them in this present crisis. Um, we, we do need to get on a massive education campaign about this because we've got, as you know, from being in Virginia and West Virginia, we have 400 years worth of uh, coal resource in this country, even more than we have natural gas. And by the way, you know, the two go hand in hand where you have yeah. bituminous coal, you've got natural gas. We're blessed with that great resource and we know how to burn it cleanly. Um, but yeah, it's been so demonized by the left as nuclear power was 30 years ago. And you'll note now they're trying to recover from that. But once you've set the table on 45 years of brainwash, it's very, very difficult to re-educate yeah, the public as the left I'm is skeptical. now beginning to try to do on nuclear. Well, I'm skeptical of their effort to actually de-demonize nuclear power, or at least I'm skeptical of their ability to do so. Because, because of their demonization, it's virtually impossible to put the policy reforms in place that would allow for an actual for a uniquely American, competitive, non-government-dependent, innovative nuclear industry to emerge in this country. Everything that we do in this country on nuclear power revolves around the Department of Energy and some you know, loan guarantee or bureaucrat this or decision that. Um, and it's all because they spent 40 years demonizing it. So you can't have a, a, a the sort of deregulatory or re-regulatory um, uh, uh, program. You, we can't privatized nuclear waste management. We can't do all of the things that we would have to do to actually get nuclear power up and running and not just building one or two subsidized over, over you know, cost-heavy nuclear plants. No, you've got, to your point, you've got two entire generations now believing indisputably that nuclear somehow relates to nuclear weapons and these plants will blow up and millions right. of people will be harmed or killed by them. I mean, that, that's a very hard notion that has, was set forth by the Sierra Club itself 
and now older members of that club who have left it have fully acknowledged it was an agenda-driven narrative, had nothing to do whatsoever with technical reality um, to, to demolish the initiatives on nuclear. So yeah, a lot of education, but I, you know, we can't be we can't be negative. We have to believe we can turn minds around. No, um, I agree with that. We, we have to. Japan, Japan, despite Fukushima, which you know, one-off thing on the ocean plant shouldn't probably shouldn't have been only eight feet over sea level. Certainly, the containment for the backup power should have been elevated much more than it was. But they're they're restarting all of their except for two plants. They're restarting 48 out of 50 nuclear plants, and they're going to build more. So even with the disaster they had that was, you know, maybe badly situated plant with, at the time, GE, Tokyo Power didn't realize the seismic risk in that region, um, probably shouldn't have been there. But that doesn't, they, they do realize that doesn't affect the rest of their well-elevated nuclear power plants. Right. And, you know, well, the, the whole don't don't even get me started on Fukushima. Because, but now you did just I just want to add two quick things. They knew what they had there, and they didn't act on it. They knew that those those uh, tsunami walls had to be higher. They knew that stuff. True. Um, yes. And, and, um, but I'm glad that they're getting stuff going, going again. And as we always do, um, we're, we're they and in the U.S., we're learning from those mistakes. Well, and importantly, which a lot of people don't realize, no one died as a result of Fukushima. No one died as a result of radi- radiological release at Fukushima. And right. despite the narrative that we see in the media, it's not nearly as contaminated there as what they, they would have you believe. A lot of the area around the plant that remains not not as inhabited as it should be is mostly because of fear, not because of actual radiological contamination. Well, and then the other, the other sin of it in the West was German then-Chancellor Merkel seized on Fukushima oh as the rationale behind shuttering all of Germany's nuclear capacity, which was 25% of their electricity, claiming that the poor Japanese, look at them, they're victims again, we can't let this happen here in Germany. The last time I checked, Germany hasn't had a seismic event since the time of the Romans, and I don't think we know of one. So, nor a tsunami, nor a tsunami. But she, she seized on that as the rationale to close their nuclear industry. Yeah, Which has now been thing. done. The whole thing's insane. Um, I have two final questions for you. The first is, how do we get things back on track? I know that's a big question. You don't need to, you know, just, what do we need to do? How do we get things back on track? Well, there is a great deal of education. I think one of the most rapid ones, though, is the, uh, the, the misnomer provided in the way data is analyzed on renewables. Um, We've allowed, through the Energy Information Agency under Democrat administrations, to define renewable electricity capacity as its rating plate value. Rating plate value is the thing that happens at the peak of sunshine at 2 in the afternoon. What defines and describes annual electricity production is kilowatt hours per year. If you properly assign that metric, which, by the way, MISO has begun to do, even under this FERC, to its net real value, which is very low. Again, solar about one-fifth. So when you hear about a 200-megawatt solar farm, that really means 40. When you hear about the offshore wind farm being built by Duke, uh, by Dominion out here by Newport News, 2,800 megawatts, that really amounts to about 1,120 megawatts, accounting for 58% of the time there's no wind. That one thing, if we can get that fixed, 
And then you've got a more proper ability to really identify the huge cost of these, these kinds of facilities. We can make a lot of progress in, in killing some of this in the crib, surely based on a cost of application level. Because the, the cost, uh, in addition to the intermittency and the part-time nature, is, is simply exorbitant of, of, of making these moves. So we educate people, look at Spain, look at England, look at Germany, Belgium, look at countries, look at California, look at Australia, who have committed resolvedly and now invested in 25 to 30 percent of their grids. Germany, 40. Renewables, look what's happened to electricity costs in these countries and these states. They're four to five, six times higher than places that haven't done this. Well, there's a reason for that. This all winds up being an extra redundant generation system that you've built just to wear the badge that you're into renewables. Huge cost. And for example, this has devastated the English economy. Devastated it. And in addition to that, burn more coal in all seriousness. Yeah. yeah. We really need to, um, anyone who's listening to this, we need to start talking about coal and what coal really is and, and get, we need to change the change of the trajectory on coal because coal is such a critical part of our energy infrastructure and should remain so for a long, long time. Well, coal, one of the things that the proponents of hating coal point to its resource extraction, its mining. I'm here to tell you lithium, copper, and cobalt are all intensely more mining resource extraction involved than coal. You know, it takes about um, 10,000, 15,000 pounds of material to create one 1,500-pound lithium-ion battery for a car, material to be excavated in terms of cobalt, lithium, and copper, and then to be processed, which is a very dirty process, using water that's discharged into the aquifer to produce about one-ninth of the weight in a final lithium-ion battery. So, that, I mean, that technology is a, entirely a mining resource extraction thing. Coal, coal consists of millions of years of compressed sunlight. It's really what it amounts to. You know, vegetation and uh, living matter that was in sunshine for right. the years of its existence, compressed, compressed, compressed into a very dense form of compressed sunlight deep underground. It's a marvelous energy resource. And I would just add, from the mining perspective, that yes, it does it does need to be mined, and those they have come up with these great ways to restore the areas that have been mined. I've talked about it a hundred times on the podcast. My where I go hunting in West Virginia is a reclaimed mine. Uh, you know, they did mining there, and you would never know it. It's the most beautiful woods that you could possibly want. So yes. Mining happens just like so many other things that, 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 that people do, and it's not the end of the world. It allows the world to keep going, and it can be restored. So don't pe folks, don't let people argue that because you're mining or extracting coal that we shouldn't do it. It's all, it's all bunk. Now, one last part, one last issue I want to bring up, and I meant to bring this up at the beginning, um, but I forgot. I, when, I, when, when I was looking into... Um, what I wanted to talk to you about, I did a Google search, and it came up that you were on a show with um, with Frank Gaffney at the Center for Security Policy. Are you friends with Frank? Yes. You know him well. Well, Frank gave me my first job in Washington, D.C. I thought that you might know him well, and I just thought I would mention that I 
I, I certainly knew him well, and when I see him, I'm always happy to, to see him, and he still knows me. So, uh, anyway, we have a mutual well, friend in Frank. We're jointly appearing down here at a conference at Liberty University, hosted by okay. Dave Bratt, and uh, Frank's a great Pittsburgh native. So I, I, I know. We're, we're like-minded know. associates on that, on that also. Well, if, if, if it comes to mind, and, and you mentioned to him you were on this podcast, tell him I said hello, would you? Will do, will do. I just uh, on your final point there on the mining. Yes. Just know it's comical to watch the Department of Interior uh, under Secretary Deb Holland, people testifying before Congress on mining lithium in this country. Their way not on board with it at all. Yeah. And here they are promoting the hell out of EVs and and battery use. They're not on board with figuring out how to cost effectively and environmentally mine lithium here at all. They actually are pro- progressing to continue to want it to come from the third world with child yeah. labor, et cetera, et cetera, until we can figure out how to make it, how to make it completely clean to their standards here. So we're but even then, even then, they're not going to want to do it. They're, they're, uh, th- this is just my thoughts on it, Dave. I'm not putting these words in your mouth. They are all liars. They are all charlatans and liars that have an ulterior objective, and they're using the the environmental agenda, specifically the global warming agenda, to advance their objective, which has nothing to do with global warming or the environment. At a minimum, they believe in a transition based on child labor in in <laughs> and slavery in western in western China and sub-Saharan Africa to produce these resources uh, to, to 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 get us to this transition. They believe and in it. I, I hate to say it. And it where it's where it sends us back to. Yes. Whenever, back in the day before we had hydrocarbons, that's when we had kids working in the factory. Well, they they talk about was, this like elite colonialists. When you listen to so them bad. testify before Congress, it's so bad. Anyway, yeah. Dave, thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power <laughs> Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends and family and colleagues to check us out and email me. I want to hear from you. I want to hear what's going on. I want you to tell me what we should be talking about. Now, before we end, Dave, is there anything you'd like to point people towards? Like, are you on social media or whatever? Anything like that? Have you, do you, you know, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm easily reachable. I, I can be found on LinkedIn, but my main uh, social media is Getter. I'm on there as at Dave Walsh Energy. So uh, often I'm posting and providing insights and charts on these same matters. So All right, there that. you go, folks. Check out Dave there. Now, Dave, any final words, anything we missed here? Well, e- energy is fundamental to the United States remaining secure, remaining industrially developed, remaining vibrant, economically viable. Uh, we, we, we have highly technical resources, highly engineered resources in terms of advanced coal-fired generation, advanced combustion turbine, power that's just been invented in the last 10 to 15 years, massive improvements in the efficiency of uh, using gas for power that, that China doesn't have. We, we need to return to these resources in a balanced way. We, we cannot be chasing. We never chased net zero with respect to the most harmful of pollutants, let alone CO2. This is, uh, this is an insane trip to deindustrializing our wonderful country, and we, we, we've got to reverse it. John, any final words? Try following that up. Uh, I'm not even going to try. All I'm going to say is this. I understand. I hear Pittsburgh came up again, Dave. Uh, even though I'm, I'm from the Philadelphia area, Pittsburgh's oh, one of my oh, favorite. It's one of my, well, hold on. Pittsburgh is <laughs> one of my favorite towns, and Permanti Brothers is one of my favorite places on the planet. 
Like, Very good. We're 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 taking Pittsburgh off the list going forward. <laughs> I've had enough of this stuff. Anyway, so there you go, folks. Remember to email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. That's thepowerhour at heritage.org. Thank you, John, Dave Walsh. Thank you for being a guest, and most importantly, thank you all for listening. Thank you. We'll thank see you, you next time. Good being with you guys. Thank you.